Please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. And I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 26. Please give your attention to God's holy word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. If you've ever heard a sermon on chapter 4 of John's Gospel before, there's a good chance that the focus of that sermon was on evangelism, and that's appropriate because in this passage we have Jesus himself evangelizing, Jesus inviting a sinner to come and find life in him. But a lot of times, if you notice, there's a short portion of this passage, verses 21 to 24, that are often separated out as kind of a side issue, And you'll hear a lot of sermons on those verses alone 
about worship and the nature of real worship, worship that is in spirit and in truth. And that's entirely appropriate as well. But honestly, I think if you're going to be faithful and try to be faithful to the whole passage with one message, I think you need to connect the two. There is a vital connection between worship and evangelism. Worship and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a friend of mine often says, when we go out to evangelize, we're fulfilling the purpose of the church because the purpose of the church is to recruit worshipers to God. That's because God didn't just rescue us from hell. That wasn't his purpose solely to rescue us from hell. His purpose was to rescue us from hell and transform us into those who worship him with all their lives. And so the purpose of evangelism is to create worshipers of the true God. 25 years ago, in Bible-believing churches like ours, the big worship controversy of the time, well, one of the big controversies of the time, was over seeker-sensitive worship. And the core issue of the seeker-sensitive worship controversy was, do we cater to the unbeliever in our worship service, or do we cater to the believer? It was kind of a new thought as some churches started making the whole worship service really about appealing to an unbeliever off the street, making it very accessible, making the unbeliever feel comfortable in hopes that they would believe the word, believe the gospel, and become a believer. And a lot of us, in response to that, of course, said, well, worship is not for an unbeliever. Worship is for the believer, and that's absolutely true. But it is also true That great worship, worship that is biblical, worship that is spirit-filled, Christ-centered, and biblically based, will attract unbelievers that are seeking, that are genuinely seeking. Remember back in chapter 3, we talked about how you create a seeker. Who creates a seeker? God creates a seeker. God creates a seeker by giving them birth from above, new birth, a new heart, and one key thing that that new heart desires is to know God and to worship God. And so if someone's been born again and they're seeking, they're only seeking because they're born again and what they're seeking, whether they know it or not, and if I don't know if you remember your own conversion, it takes a while to figure out what you're seeking. But what you ultimately are seeking is to worship God. Because that's your ultimate need. And we need to understand that as a ministry, as a congregation of God's people, probably the best means of being a testimony to our community is to be a place where the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, where the spirit of God is pleased to dwell, where God's people are humbly coming to worship because that worship will draw people that God is drawing to himself. Because that's what they're really hungry for, even when they don't fully understand it. Jesus initiated this whole conversation with this woman by promising to give her living water. Unlike real water, which satisfies your thirst for a moment, but the thirst quickly returns, this kind of water goes to the very core of your being, the core of your soul, and satisfies your deepest need. He's talking about 
Worship and a relationship with the living God through the Holy Spirit. Worship is an encounter with God that inherently transforms your life if you're born again. And this woman, we find out through the course, and we'll actually finish looking next week at this passage, but she proves to be a genuine seeker. And as we observe how Jesus invites her into a relationship with himself, he is essentially inviting her to worship. And when she left home that day and she put that empty clay jar on her shoulder or on her head, the way they carried them in those days, and went to that well, which was about a half a mile to a mile away from her home, she had no idea that she was going to worship. She has no idea that she was going to encounter the living God. She had no idea that she was going to drink of living water. Let's look at Jesus' invitation and see what it communicates to us because we are seeking to invite others to come and know him and to worship him too. What does his invitation to this woman teach us? First of all, he teaches us that an invitation to true worship is an invitation to acceptance. It's an invitation to acceptance. And whether people out there will admit it or not, that's what they deeply long for, is to be truly accepted. Jesus says to this woman as she walks up to Jacob's well, and literally, historically, as a matter of fact, they still have labeled where Jacob's well is. You can still go there today. They know where this well was, and they do trace it back, as far as we can tell, to Jacob the patriarch. It was his well. It was in Samaritan territory. And this Samaritan woman comes to the well, as she did every day, to get water. And Jesus, as she approaches, says to her, give me a drink. Doesn't sound very earth-shattering, doesn't sound very controversial, doesn't sound very shocking. But the woman would have been deeply shocked to have this Jewish rabbi ask her for a drink of water. Many of you are probably familiar with the history, but let me review it just quickly. The northern kingdom of Israel was came under God's judgments for its idolatry, its rebellion, consistent rebellion against God. About 750 years earlier than this dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed as, as God's hand of judgment came against them through the kingdom of Assyria. Assyria wiped them out, wiped them off the map. And one of the means by which they wiped them off the map was to take the people who lived, the, the Jews who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, and to take the best and the brightest and actually most of the population and spread them out through the Assyrian Empire throughout that part of the world, leaving only the poorest and most dependent people there. And then they replaced the, 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 the Jewish people that they removed, they replaced them with pagans and put people from other territories that they had conquered, moved them into that area. And so from that point on, what you have is intermarrying, which led to a combination of cultures, which, you know, the old melting pot thing that we celebrate in America, it wasn't a good thing in that area because you had the true faith and the true religion of the Old Testament scriptures was being mixed and conformed and combined and, and corrupted along with all these other pagan religious ideas. And, and biblical culture was mixed with pagan culture. And you ended up with this weird sort of religion that had some t- uh, overtones and elements of true biblical Old Testament religion, but much of it that was very pagan and certainly had gotten far away from what we would call the Old Testament understanding of the gospel. 
So this is the Samaritans. They were physical and spiritual half-breeds. They were religious heretics in the eyes of the Jews. And worship was a particularly contentious issue because if you remember Old Testament history, when the southern kingdom was taken away later into captivity in Babylon, 70 years later they began to return, and when they returned they began to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and the Samaritans wanted to come down and join forces with them. They wanted to become part of this reconstitution of the kingdom of Israel. But under godly leadership, the Jews said, no, we know what's going to happen. We're not going to, we're not going to do what you guys did up there in the north. We're not going to combine your lifestyle, your culture, your religion with our religion. We need to stand for the true religion. And so they, re- they rejected their desire to merge. And as a result, the Samaritans attacked the Jews as they tried to rebuild their kingdom. And what's interesting then is as a result of that later on, the Samaritans actually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in their own Samaritan territory. That's where they went to worship. And just to show why there was such bad blood between these two groups of people, about 150 years before this dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, a Jewish priest had gone up to Mount Gerizim and had destroyed the temple in his fervor for a true religion. He had destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. So needless to say, the bottom line is these two people did not like each other at all. There was severe racial, cultural, religious hatred between these groups of people. And the Jews had no respect for these these heretics and these worldly people in their minds. Matter of fact, to give you just, just a taste of this, over in John chapter 8, Jesus is debating with the Jewish leadership. And he's telling them, you are not of God. You do not represent God. And listen to how they respond to him in chapter 8. They, the Jewish leaders say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Not much difference in their minds between being a Samaritan and having a demon. Bad when your whole cultural identity is used as an insult in another culture. And so John explains here in this passage, he says the Jews, <laughs> a understatement here of all understatements, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, it's kind of interesting because we know that Jesus' disciples just went in to buy food in the Samaritan town. So it's not that they had absolutely no dealings with the Samaritans. But literally what it says in the original language there is that they don't handle with the Samaritans. In other words, they don't. If if a Samaritan drinks out of a cup or eats off of a plate, a Jew would never touch it. And so Jesus says to the woman, could you take your jar and give me a drink? A radical request that he's making here in the eyes of his own culture and even in the Samaritan culture. Here's a woman who had two huge strikes against her in the eyes of many Jews. She was a woman to start with, to many of the Jews in that culture, but she was a Samaritan. And as we'll find out in a minute, she had a reputation. And it's amazing that Jesus even spoke to her let alone entered into this kind of a dialogue with her. What a contrast between the Samaritan woman here in John chapter 4 and Nicodemus in chapter 3. The last dialogue that we saw Jesus enter into was with Nicodemus. He was the highly respected Pharisee, the well-known teacher among the Jews, leader, member of the Sanhedrin. And as you contrast him with the Samaritan woman, you realize as you put these two chapters together, they were both 
desperately lost, both spiritually blind, as Jesus began the dialogue with them. And so here we come to our first principle, is that as we invite people to Christ, as we invite people to worship with us around the throne of Christ, we are inviting them to experience the acceptance of Christ. The acceptance of Christ. There are no entrance requirements to the kingdom of God. There is no form to fill out. There's no battery of tests to take. There's no profile to fit to come into the kingdom of God. Literally, it is come as you are as you come to the kingdom. And that's true whether you're a Samaritan or a Jew. It's true whether you, whatever your race is, whatever your education level is, whatever your social class is, whatever your religious background is, whatever sexual orientation you embrace for yourself, come as you are if you feel a desire, a thirst. Come as you are. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You don't need to get with a program. You don't have to have your agenda all in place. Christ will welcome you as you are. It's a kingdom of acceptance because we are all sinners. We are all sinners. I couldn't help this week but think about a sister in Christ that I've been reading about a lot lately, read about her in Christianity Today, read about her in World Magazine, read about her on the Internet, on some of the the blogs on the Internet, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria was a professor, a tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University at one time. She was also a leftist, postmodern, radical lesbian by her own definition. And she, at one point, went on a crusade against the religious right, writing articles wherever she could write them, and and she was actually doing research to, to try to write a book against the religious right. And she wrote one particular article in the Syracuse newspaper that was attacking the Promise Keepers movement. And in response to that article, she got a ton of hate mail. But one letter that she thought was hate mail when she started to read it realized all of a sudden this isn't hate mail. Matter of fact, this person's really engaging me, wants to know more about what I think. And this is a person who signs as a pastor of a church. And she was intrigued by that. She actually threw the letter away but went and got it back out and and read it over again and again. And she's so intrigued by it, she thought, I'd like to talk to this guy. So she called him up and she said, I'm writing a book against the religious right and... Your letter fascinated me. Could we get together and talk about it? And he said, sure. And as she began meeting with this pastor, his name's Ken Smith and his wife, Floyd. actually knew them well when I was in seminary. They were the past- Ken Smith was at the time the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, a sister church of Grace Reformed Presbyterian here in town. And they invited her into her home, began interacting with her. Let me, I want to let Rosaria speak for herself here. Let me share a couple of quotes from her, an interview that was done with her recently. Talking about that moment in her life, Rosaria says, Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. 
They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was, a, was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. Which is interesting there, of allowing the spirit to work. Not forcing the situation. But what's interesting is at that point then, Rosaria began to kind of stalk the church where Ken was the pastor. That's her own term for it. She would park across the street and watch people go in and out. She was fascinated by what kind of a church Ken was a part of. And so let me read to you a bit of the the description of her stalking. She said, I had my Starbucks, Starbucks coffee in my New York Times and maybe an article I was working on in my truck with the gay and lesbian bumper stickers on the back. I would park and watch these enormous families pour out of 15-person passenger vans. The kids just kept coming and coming, and it was astounding. I woke up one morning, emerged from a bed that I shared with a woman, got in my truck with my bumper stickers and my butch haircut, and showed up at the Reformed Presbyterian Church. What strikes me looking back is what this church had been doing, praying for me faithfully. Ken was sharing with this church our friendship and our relationship, and the members were genuinely on their knees praying for me. It's easier to simply be disgusted by a person like me than to pray for me. She says, I also brought friends like Jay to church. And earlier in the interview, Jay was a transgendered friend of hers. She says, the church went from being a cleaned-up homeschooling church to suddenly a church with a ministry to a lot of broken people. Come as you are. If there's a thirst to know God, we need to represent God faithfully. And there are no entrance requirements to the kingdom of God. Nothing you have to have in place, nothing you have to have figured out before you come. And we need to communicate that because that's what Jesus communicated to this Samaritan woman. Anyone who comes acknowledging that they are broken and empty-handed who will acknowledge a spiritual thirst, is welcome. The second thing that Jesus teaches us by his example here is that an invitation to worship the true and living God is is an invitation to be truly satisfied. To be truly satisfied. Look at verses 10, beginning verse 10. Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then he describes that water in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, the water in her jar, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When somebody comes, they come needy. They come broken. They come empty-handed. And we need to communicate to them that that's good. Because this is a place to receive, to receive. Worship is receiving from God, not giving to God. To receive from God. And understand that most people, when they come into a worship service as a seeking unbeliever at that point in their lives, when they come in, they're suspicious. 
especially the way the church is presented in this culture. They're suspicious. What do we want from them? What do these people want from me? It feels like that for a long time when they first start attending church. We need to understand that. Do they want my money? Do they want to make their membership role bigger? Do they want me to buy into their agenda or into their movement? What do these people want from me? It's that same feeling that you get when you walk onto a used car lot and you see the car salesman coming across the parking lot. 